time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Hello, my friends. How are you? And welcome to today's edition of the financial physician where we talk money, markets, politics, and Anything that affects your life, and uh, there's lots of things going on that are affecting all our lives right now, and uh, we got a a jam-packed show for you today, and a lot of negative things to talk about in the world, unfortunately. Uh, We're living through uh, very dangerous times, and we're going to lay it out for you here on The Financial Physician, so uh, get yourself a cup of coffee, relax, and enjoy the program. So let's start off talking about the economy. Something really weird happened this week. The government announced the GDP, the gross domestic product, which is a gauge of the economy. Now, if you ask most Americans, they don't think the economy is doing well at all, but the government came out and announced that the GDP rose 4.9% in the third quarter. Uh, If you believe that, well, then you'll believe anything. Uh, Now, most Americans don't believe it. We're going to get into that in a second. But I told you, on Wednesday's program, I talked about it. Do not believe anything that the government says about the economy between now and the election. It's all fudge. It's all bull. It's all a mirage. It's all a dream. And it's all to make Bidenomics look like it's a good thing. That the economy is actually doing really well under this president. We should all be happy. But I'm going to talk about some disturbing things that are going on out there that really does not jive well with the employment numbers, with the inflation numbers, and now the GDP. I don't think there's any way in hell that the economy is growing at a 5% pace right now. And the markets don't believe it either. I'm going to go into that in a second. I think the financial markets right now are as risky as they've ever been, especially the stock market. We also have a looming potential world war happening. We have political instability here in the United States. We've got an election year coming up. we got a lot of stuff happening. So let's start looking at the stock market. Now, the stock market had a really good first eight months of the year. And the market peaked, I think it was in early August sometime. I mean, you had the NASDAQ up like 34 35% after horrendous 2022. I mean, 2022 was a just a terrible year for stocks and bonds. One of the worst years we've seen in decades. And one of the few years where not only did stocks go down a lot, bonds went down a lot as well. There was nowhere to hide in 2022. So at least the first eight months of 2023 was a rebound year. For the stock market. I think the S&P was up 17, 18% at the peak. 
the Dow much less, maybe 10, and the NASDAQ up around 34, 30, uh, 35%. Now, it's going back the other way right now. And looking at the charts on the markets, uh, they're at a very vulnerable level right now. Let's look at this week. Uh, we saw the Dow down 2.14%. For the year, the Dow is now down. It's down 2.2% for the year. So it's given back all of its 10% gain. The S&P 500 down 2.53% for the week. Still up those seven and three quarters percent. So it's still looking good on paper, but it was up 17%. So it's down 10% since August. It's in correction. A correction in the market means that it's gone down 10%. If the market goes down 20%, that's a bear market. So we're not quite in a bear market yet, but uh, we're in correction territory. Now, the NASDAQ, which has been the best index this year, NASDAQ has a lot of the big technology stocks in it. And obviously, technology has done very well. The Magnificent Seven stocks, we'll talk about how much they've come down from their highs. But they they, they drove most of the S&P 500, most of the NASDAQ this year. It's really been seven companies. If you look at the other 493 companies in the S&P 500, they haven't done well. But from a peak of up like 34, 35%, for the year, the NASDAQ is now up 20%, 20.8%. So it's given it back 12% just in two months. That's a big concern. For the week, the NASDAQ was down 2.62%. Interest rates are staying stubbornly high on the bond market. Uh, the 10-year uh, yield is 4.84, touched 5% earlier in the week. Lots of concern in financial markets about the bond market, about U.S. Treasury bonds and, and, and yields going higher. It's affecting everything interest rate related. It, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage right now hit a new high, 7.79%. So almost 7.8% on the way to 8%. Could you believe it? For so long, what, 10, 12 years, we had 3%, 3, 3.5% mortgage rates. And now people can't believe it, especially first-time homebuyers who, who who just got married and looking for their first home. Good luck with that. Now, this is one of the indicators that I watch a lot to tell me what's going on in financial markets, and that's the price of gold. Price of gold soared on Friday. Why? Because of the ground offensive that the Israelis started. And we're going to talk a lot about the war and what's going to happen there um, in a little bit. But gold is over 2000 an ounce now, uh, closed on Friday, $2,006 an ounce. The all-time high for gold is, what, 2060 so we're not that far off. And my guess in the weeks ahead, we're going to take out that high and go much higher. And why is that happening? Because people are looking at gold as a safe haven, as a place to go to protect themselves. And gold is doing exactly what it's supposed to do during times of of instability, financial instability. And I'm looking at it kind of like a canary in a coal mine. That's that something's not quite right. In the world, in the financial system, we're going to talk about banks in a second. Silver, $23 an ounce, kind of stuck in a, a tight range. Oil prices, after spiking over $90 a barrel, uh, surprisingly is down to $85 a barrel. And, I, and that's kind of... 
kind of confounding given what's happening uh, in the Middle East. Now, that could change in a moment. I mean, oil prices can go up $20 in a day with the right scenario of events that I think may be probable in the Middle East. Uh, gasoline prices are pretty stable over the last uh, couple of months, right around 360 370 a, a gallon. Bitcoin had a really big week, and I think that's another sign that there's something wrong in the general economy and the general markets. Uh, at one point, Bitcoin was up uh, $5,000 in a week, closing in, well, it never really closes, but uh, the last I looked, it was $34,083 of Bitcoin. So if you're, um, you're into Bitcoin, whatever that is, uh, <laughs> I guess you're happy you had a good week. Now, let's take a look at the banks. That's another thing that I look at all the time. As I look at the bank index, I look at the bank stocks, because obviously the price of bank stocks indicates the health of the banking system. And right now, bank stocks are down at the lows that we saw in the spring when we had the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Let's look at um, from the highs in August. Bank of America is down 22%. J.P. Morgan Chase down 15%. Wells Fargo down 17.6%. PNC Bank down 20%. Citigroup down 22%. And some of the regional banks are down even more. So there's something going on in the banking system. I've been warning you about it for some time. And uh, I think we are at the precipice of a major banking crisis. And if we're on the, on the precipice of a major banking crisis, uh, the stock market is ready for a crash. And there's a lot of nervousness in financial markets. You could hear it in the voices of the, the co uh, commentators on CNBC and Fox Business. You're hearing it from economists. And, um, and market pundits are coming out very, very worried about what they're seeing in the market. And when you see um, the magnificent, magnificent seven stocks, those tech stocks I mentioned earlier, going down. I mean, we saw Google down 10% in one day of trading this week after they came out. And their, their forward-looking earnings weren't very good. And since um, the peak in August... Uh, these seven stocks have lost $1.2 trillion in value. $1.2 trillion in value. Uh, that's quite a bit of money lost in the market. And when the leaders of a market, in this case tech, start going down, uh, that portends uh, further declines in the market. Let's look at some of these stocks. Apple. The darling of the tech uh, stocks is uh, has lost four hundred eighty one billion in market cap since August, down fifteen percent. Tesla, owned by Elon Musk, you know the electrical car manufacturer, uh, is down one hundred ninety four billion in market cap, down thirty one percent since August. Google's down a uh, thirteen point four percent, ten percent this week, most of it. Now, Amazon had good earnings. Their stock did um, real, held up relatively well on Friday in a down market. Uh, Facebook, Meta is down 11%. So, so these big tech stocks are really taking it on the chin. 
and that's hurting the NASDAQ index, it's hurting the S&P 500. Now, the S&P 500 is down to 4,200, and that's been a, a pretty significant technical level that a lot of analysts were looking at, where if it breaks 4,200, uh, there's further downside ahead. So it's uh, it's decisively broke that. So we'll see what kind of follow-through there is Monday and Tuesday. Uh, but October of 2023 was a horrible, horrible month in the market. And look, October 2, 2023 is going to be perhaps the month that the Third World War started. Well, what do you expect stocks to do in that case? Now, I said that um, they announced the GDP this week and the economy miraculously grew in the third quarter at a rate of 4.9%, which is ridiculous. But Americans don't trust the numbers. They don't trust the government's economic news, and, and rightfully so. And they don't, they don't believe the media's reporting of it. So there was a recent Harris poll. And what it said is that two-thirds of um, Americans are unhappy about the economy. Despite the reports of inflation easing, which it's not, Unemployment is close to a 50-year low, which it's not. And the poll suggests that uh, many don't believe the positive economic news the government has reported because it's fudged. It's a lie. It's propaganda. Now, Republicans are far more pessimistic than Democrats because they're guys running the show. But they're still very pessimistic. Two-thirds of respondents, 68% reported it's difficult to be happy about positive economic news when they feel financially squeezed each month. 69% of Republicans said that, and Democrats, 68%. So about the same. Two-thirds of Americans, 65%, believe that the economy is worse than the media makes it out to be, rather than better. In August, the unemployment rate was 3.8%, close to a 50-year low. But the poll found that 51% believe that unemployment is nearing a 50-year high rather than they believe it's hitting a 50-year low. So the um, lack of confidence in the U.S. economy, you know, has many academics and uh, politicians puzzled. Why, Why do people think this? It's because people are living a life. They go into the grocery store. They see what the price of everything is. They can't afford to pay their bills. You know, the, the, the media and the government comes out and says, inflation is going down. What does that mean to you? Well, a lot of people would think that if inflation is going down, prices are going down. That's not the case at all. The rate of inflation is going up. It's just not going up at the rate it was going up at its peak. If you want to believe the CPI, which I don't anyway. So if uh, the CPI is 3.7%, well, it's not 9.7. So inflation is going down. But the prices are going up. How's that for a conundrum? 82% of Republicans and 66% of independents believe the economy is worse than the media's portrayal. But nearly half of Democrats, 49%, also said 
the media view the economy too favorably. So what gives here? Who's right? Well, my guess is that it's uh, the citizens of the country are right. They know their wages haven't kept pace with inflation. They're struggling to pay their bills. They're going more and more in debt each month. Credit cards have hit a record level. We'll talk about that later, including record interest rates right now. And they see leadership in this country weak. Now, Bidenomics uh, is now going to be a term that's going to be looked at pejoratively, negatively. Now, Biden's come out and Bidenomics, my my economic plan is working. I don't know what economic plan he's talking about because I don't know what plan it is. I haven't heard it. I don't know what Bidenomics is. But I don't want any of it. If it's uh, the middle class not being able to pay their bills, having to go further in debt. I don't want any of it. Uh, Biden supporters have launched a $13 million advertising campaign extolling the president's economic achievements. And, you know, he always uh, falls back to the $1.2 trillion infrastructure and climate bill, uh, which is nothing but the Green New Deal. And the Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation at all, actually... Uh, the money that they're spending is just going to make inflation worse. Um, so uh, people don't believe it. They believe the stock market's down, believe it or not. You know, the S&P 500, like I said, is up, uh, what, 10% for the year? NASDAQ's up 20. Dow's down a couple percent. But 59% of respondents in this survey believe the S&P is down for the year. Uh, the majority of all those asked said the S&P was down. Republicans said 66% of them said that. Independents said 60%. Democrats said 52%. 75% of those polls believe the wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Now, of course, you know, Republicans 84%, Independents 75%, and Democrats 67%. These, these are horrible numbers for Joe Biden and the administration. But it's worse, it's Horrible numbers for Joe Sixpack and his family who can't get by. So we're living right now in very, very interesting times. I really, truly believe that the economy is on a precipice. Uh, I believe the stock market is really at a pivotal place right now. And this coming week may be the, the tipping point where we have a really scary downturn in the market. Some of it may have to do with what's happening in Israel and the Middle East. They've started their ground offensives on Friday. And that kicked oil prices higher, kicked gold prices higher, kicked the stock market down. And the stock market's way overvalued and has been for some time. I've been warning you about this for a long time. And if you were overexposed to the market... I told you in the summer, you had a gift from God. After 2022, the markets rebounded hard. Now was the time to get more conservative, more into bonds, more into money market accounts. Another thing that we're seeing, um, 
is banks, like I said. Uh, bank stocks are retreating. Uh, and that's a, that's a significant canary in the coal mine. Uh, I'll repeat what I've said for years in this program. That's caused a lot of problems out there, uh, especially locally here in Ocean County, New Jersey. Do not have your life savings in any bank. Uh, put them in money market accounts. Put them in brokerage accounts. Just get them out of the banks while you still can. And people have no idea what's coming. And uh, I'm becoming more and more uh, sure that we're going to have a banking crisis in the next six months. We're going to have crises in virtually every aspect of our life in the next six months. And we'll lay that out later. I was interviewed uh, this week um, for uh, a podcast uh, in a YouTube channel called uh, RCT uh, Network, a conservative political channel run by a guy named Michael Keyes. I'll play bits of my interview with them uh, later on. Uh, It was supposed to be a relatively short interview. It went for an hour and 35 minutes. And we talked about everything. And I think I kind of surprised him with my my revelations of what I think is going to happen. We'll have that. We'll have that interview, uh, the entire interview on the, the financialphysician.com blog. If you want to go over there and watch the whole thing, but I'll, I'll play snippets a bit later in the program. But we're living in very, very dangerous times. It's important that you protect yourself, your family. Oh, I want to remind you about the midweek podcast I did on Wednesday. If you didn't listen to it, go. Uh, I opened up the show talking about the potential for the electrical grid going down for as much as a year due to electro, uh, EMP, electromagnetic pulse weapon detonated over the United States. And I, I laid out the reasons why I think that's becoming more and more possible and the importance of preparing for the possibility of that. Can you imagine, you know, it's tough enough for the electric to go out two hours and we're totally inconvenienced. Or how about a week during a hurricane? I experienced that with Superstorm Sandy. Uh, You realize how important electricity is when you don't have it. But you want to listen to that and you want to listen to the things I tell you to do to prepare for the potential of it. You have to prepare for the worst case scenario in your life. And you know what? If it doesn't happen, so what? So you have extra food, you have extra water. But sooner or later, it's going to happen anyway. If not that, something else, some other natural disaster or man-made disaster. Who knows? You always want to be prepared. So go to thefinancialphysician.com. Go to the Midweek Podcast. Uh, I think it'd be worth your time. Share it with other people. And make sure that, you know, only you could protect your family. You know, I listened to uh, Dan Bongino this week, and, and he scared the crap out of me. And Dan Bongino, for those who don't know, is a, is a an ex uh, Secret Service agent. He was a, a Secret Service Secret Service agent uh, during the Obama years, and he said that everybody right now needs to arm themselves because you can't you have to protect yourself from what's coming down the pipe. Now he didn't say what he knew; he didn't share that with us, but he obviously he knows something. <laughs> 
is going on. Uh, and maybe if I could find the, um, the podcast, I'll, I'll, I'll play part of it for you later in the program. All right, let's take a short break. My name's Lou Skatigna. You're listening to The Financial Physician. Don't go away. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Skatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no-obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin & Company, member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through Argentus Advisors. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. Right, welcome back to the Financial Position. Luce Katigna here. Thanks so much for joining us for our Sunday two-hour podcast. And for the last uh, what, three or four months since I went podcast only, uh, we've been doing two podcasts. We've been doing a two-hour Sunday podcast that I upload by 9 a.m. Sunday morning, uh, which is very similar to uh, the radio show I've done on WOBM for 23 years. Uh, Sunday mornings, we always uploaded the program at 9 a.m., and we continue to do it uh, with the podcast. And I've been doing a Wednesday one-hour podcast for you as well, but we're going to stop doing the Wednesday podcast. Uh, it's just too much for me. I mean, it, it takes a lot of time to produce these podcasts. Uh, it's not the same as doing a radio show. In a radio show, you walk in, the light goes on, you do two hours worth of radio. Sure, you have to do all the preparation. You have to have all the content. Uh, but you don't have to do audio editing, uh, which takes a lot of time mastering and, and everything else. I mean, it takes me probably eight to 10 hours to do the Sunday podcast with all the splicing, the editing and everything that goes on in producing it. And then it takes about four or five hours, maybe more to do the Wednesday podcast. Now I'm a full-time certified financial planner running a financial planning practice. And I know once income tax season starts, I'm an accountant. It's, it'll be impossible for me to do that midweek podcast. So I'm going to have to shut it down anyway. So this is what I'm going to do. We're not going to do a set midweek podcast on Wednesdays. I'm going to do updates during the week. It could be Tuesday, could be Thursday. It depends when news breaks. It depends when I think it's appropriate to come on and talk to you about something. Could be something that happens in the market. Could be something that happens in the, in the world. And it may be 10, 15 minutes, maybe a half hour. I don't know. It may be uh, a video. 
uh, or it may just be a podcast. If it's a video, it'll also be a podcast because the audio is there. I'll just put it on the podcast. But uh, if it's only 10 minutes, maybe I'll just do a, a video and it'd be on Rumble or it'll be on my um, my blog at thefinancialphysician.com. So you never know when I'm going to pop up with something. So I think that's more flexible for me. I think it works out better and I think it's better for you too. Um, so, uh, make sure, uh, do two things. When you go to the podcast at Podomatic, there's a button there. It says follow. Click on that button. It'll ask for your email address and you'll be able to get a notification anytime I update the podcast. Now, nothing's going to change with the Sunday podcast. It'll be up usually up by seven in the morning, but certainly will be up by 9 a.m. like it always is. And we're not changing anything about the Sunday podcast. I mean, we've been doing it on Sundays for 24 years almost. I'm not changing that. So there'll be no change to your your Sunday routine if you're a regular Sunday morning listener to the program. Uh, But like I said, it may turn out. Something happens in the market on Monday. I may put up a video. So the way to be informed on that is, A, every video is going to have a podcast at Podomatic. So follow the Podomatic podcast. And also, when you go to thefinancialphysician.com, it pops up. You can get the book. It says if you want to get a download of the book, that's fine. But give us your email address. If you give us our email address, we always blast out an email from thefinancialphysician.com letting you know that there's been an update to the blog, a video, or whatever. So uh, that's a change we're going to do. I've been, I've been kind of conflicted about it for some time. But the bottom line to it is uh, it's affecting my ability to uh, uh, run my business properly. It's just taking up too much of my time. Uh, and it's, um, it's a change that I think would be beneficial to, to you, my listeners, and, and to me as well. So make sure you are informed on what, when we update uh, by being a follower to the Podomatic uh, podcast and also when you go to thefinancialphysician.com. Give us your email. We're not going to send you anything. We're not going to try to market to you. We're not going to share it with anybody. The only thing you're going to get on either platform is just going to be a notice that there's been an update. Also, share the podcast with friends and family. That's the way the podcast grows. Uh, You'll be helping the podcast, and you'll also be helping whoever you send the podcast to that you think will benefit by it. You want to get in touch with me? Real easy. Just send me an email at lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Love your emails. I tell you, it's so good to get to know my listeners. You know, when you do something like this, a podcast, it's it's not even a radio show, so we don't even take calls. So uh, we don't get any feedback except through your emails. And I love your emails. You guys are great out there. Thanks so much for the, the kind words you say about the program. If I could help you with anything, and I really truly mean that. I love when I get an email where somebody needs some help they have a personal finance issue or question or they're looking for um, uh, some information, uh, I'm here for you. Uh, anybody who takes time to listen to this program, you have me as a resource. Just send me an email, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Tell me what your issue is, and hopefully I can give you the right answer or point you in the right direction. That's lou at thefinancialphysician.com. You want me to cover something on the program? Let me know. You got a comment on something that we talked about? Let me know. I love your emails, lou at thefinancialphysician.com, and I respond to each and every one. And if for some reason you don't get a response from me, send it again. 
Now, I was talking in the beginning of the show about, you know, that was a guest on a podcast this week, and I'm going to be doing a lot more of this. Uh, I was approached by an agency that, that that's looking for guests on some uh, some pretty good podcasts out there, and I, you know, I, I agreed to do it. So I'll be doing a lot of podcasts. I've committed to about eight already uh, in the months to come, and I'll put snippets of it here on the program, but I'll also put the entire interview on the website, thefinancialphysician.com. So Michael Keyes, he's, uh, he's a young guy, he's a conservative guy, uh, right now he's in Australia, uh, and, and we did an interview, it's a, it's a video interview, um, the whole thing is going to be on, is, is on the website, if it's not there now, it'll be there shortly uh, of, of the interview, and we talked about everything financial, I, I think I had him, I think I had his head spinning, I don't think he knew what he was getting into with me. Because those of you who are long-term listeners to the show, uh, I'm unusual in my opinions. And uh, and I think I kind of shook him up a little bit. But he's a smart kid. He, you know, he, he was a licensed uh, securities uh, broker for a while. So he has a, uh, you know, he has his hand on finance. And he told me in preparation for the, the interview, he listened to like five of my Sunday programs. He spent the whole day just listening to them. Uh, so I think, uh, we had a really, really good interview. I think you want to tune into it. Uh, will you learn something, uh, differently than you learn from this podcast? Probably not. Well, maybe you would, maybe you would. And I'm going to play some snippets, um, from the interview. First, we're going to talk about how the Biden administration changed the definition of recession last year, uh, and how I believe that the government fudges all the economic data. Let's go into recession. Now, in 2022, the United States experienced negative consecutive quarterly GDP growth in Q1 and Q2, which by any means, any test I've ever taken, any class I've ever had on economics in college, I know on every one of my securities licenses tests, the definition of a recession was two consecutive negative quarters of GDP growth. Yet the White House, when you go on their website, has completely redefined the term. And they use certain professionals that have gone along with their new definition of what a recession is. And since unemployment was at all-time lows or whatever their reasoning was, we have never really declared an official recession during that time period. Why do you think this is? Why do you think that all of a sudden things just change? Is it to cover their own ass? Have we been looking at what a recession is the wrong way? Hasn't the definition of everything been changed over the last few years, including gender and everything else? I mean, we're living in an Orwellian society where the truth is never told anymore. First off, I don't believe any government economic statistic that comes out. They're all fudged from the CPI to the employment numbers to the GDP. They're all massaged. And now more than ever. Now, this happened in many administrations. It's not just this one. But now we're to the point of where it's fantasy. They will not, in the next year, report a negative GDP. No matter how bad the economy is, that's my opinion. Uh, I think the the employment numbers are so skewed and so fudged. And and they're always revised down months later uh, to make them look better than they are. There's an economist that I follow. His name is John Williams. He has a, a... website called shadowstats.com. And what he does is he calculates government numbers the way they used to calculate them in the 80s before they started screwing around with these things. 
He says right now, unemployment is really at least 20%. He says inflation is at least double what they're reporting now and double digits. Uh, he challenges the GDP numbers all the time. We are in recession. This economy is contracting. You've had, what was it, 16 consecutive months where the leading economic indicators are negative? I mean, the last time we saw that was 2007, 2008, and you know what happened then. So it'll be obvious to the average American, if it's not now, that we are in a recession within a few months. Uh, but I don't trust the government to report those numbers accurately. And if they do come in negative, like you said before, they'll change the definition of what recession is. And they'll point to some arcane economist who agrees with them. So you brought this up. I don't know if it was your show yesterday or if it was one you did in the last couple of weeks. I listened to so, several of them. But you're saying that the initial reports come out and then they'll go back and actually revise these reports later on. Yeah, after the headline, you know, the headline will come out, you know, uh, the, the, the economy created 225,000 jobs last month, right? And then um, uh, come January, the revised October number down by 100,000, maybe more sometimes. I've seen them year over year, revise them down a million. Uh, so, you know, you can't trust these numbers, let's face it. If you're uh, the party in power, do you want to be the one that's reporting negative GDP that you're in a recession? Are you want the guy who wants to report that unemployment is rising dramatically and we're not creating jobs? Of course not. It's not good politically. Uh, but it's going to be bad next year. The economy is heading into the abyss. It started already. It's going to be evident to everybody in the next few months. I don't know what will trigger the stock market crash, a banking crisis. Uh, who knows what it will be? Uh, but American in 2024 are going to know that we are in dire economic times and the government's going to do everything they can to massage these numbers to make you believe it's not true. But Americans who go to the grocery store know it's true when you're talking about inflation. People who lose their jobs in the middle of this are going to know that we're in a recession. So it's hard to massage numbers. It's hard to lie to the American people when Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre comes out and says we've created 11 million jobs when a good portion of that were people just coming back to work after COVID lockdowns. Uh, everything is a lie. Everything is an untruth. Everything is propaganda. Uh, and that's the society we live in now. And that's the government uh, that you're dealing with now. And it's getting worse by the day. Next, you ask me about gold. And this is the interesting thing about younger people. They don't understand gold. They really don't. Uh, and, and I think they're Bitcoin people. You know, everybody looks at Bitcoin as the alternative to the U.S. dollar. But gold has been gold for 5,000 years. So he asked me a question about gold and he asked me, what use does it have? It doesn't do anything. Two different things here. The one is the gold, as we're talking about inflation, things like that. And then I don't know if you're how well versed you are in modern monetary theory, because that seems to be where I think we're going. But why gold? Why? This is one thing I am having trouble, I guess, get behind because while we are on the gold standard, I understand it, but we're not on the gold standard. And I don't think we're in a position where we can go back to it anyways. So why is it that gold seems to be what everyone returns to? Because what is the use for gold? There's really no use for it other than a backing of, of a currency. And like, why, why is that? Is it just because people think that gold has value? Gold's had value for 5,000 years. Uh, it's always had value. 
it can't be debased like currencies can. And you mentioned, we, well, why would anybody want gold? We don't have a gold standard anymore. It's precisely because we don't have a gold standard anymore that your paper currency has really no value. It's only the confidence that the people have in it because nothing backs it. So, you know, gold, at least you know, there's only a finite amount of it. Now, gold never goes up or down. It's the currency, the purchasing power of the currency that goes up or down. And it's reflected in everything, including an ounce of gold or an ounce of silver. I bought my gold and I'm a significant gold investor. I, I, I believe and I have I've had the conviction for some time uh, that the end is coming and it's going to be a hyperinflationary event. And I didn't work my whole life to build up my wealth to have the government and the central bank destroy it to inflation. And the way you protect yourself is through real estate, through uh, commodities, uh, and through gold and silver. Now, I have more gold and silver as a percent of my portfolio than I'd ever recommend a client. All right. But I bought my gold at 800 in around 2005. Now, to buy the same gold, it's about 2000 right? So it's been doing exactly what it's supposed to do, preserve wealth, right? And some people say, well, Lou, you know, you can't eat an ounce of gold. No, but I can sell the ounce of gold for $10,000 and be able to afford the inflated food that you can't because your money was in a bank account, right? And the same is true of real estate. Look what we've seen happen to real estate prices in the last few years. That's inflation. It's the same thing. Every time that you dilute a currency by printing more and more of it, you're causing each unit of the currency to be worth less, right? So every dollar that's printed into existence makes every dollar that's out there now worth less. You can't expand the money supply unless the economy is expanding at the same rate. So if you're expanding the money supply by 8%, your GDP better be 8% to sustain that actual growth of the money supply. The money's been ballooning. If I showed you a chart of the money supply, all right, the overall money supply of the country, it goes vertical like a hockey stick. Um, and, and that's what's caused this inflation. Uh, and it's always the same recipe. You print money, prices go up because the value of each unit goes down. Now, uh, there's an old saying in the gold market. You know, in 1935, one ounce of gold would have bought a fine man's suit. And today, one ounce of gold will buy a fine man's suit. Nothing's changed. The suit didn't change and the gold didn't change. What changed is the value of the U.S. dollar that's used to purchase it. And we all know that. Everything is more expensive tomorrow than it is today, uh, as it was five years ago, as it was 10 years ago, as three decades ago. Now, you, you know, you see people on the Internet, they, they, they show a picture of a, a Burger King or McDonald's menu from 1970. And it's like, you know, 25 cents for a burger, you know, and now it's like 325, right? That's inflation. And it's all reflected in the the, 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 the dilution of the currency, the monetization of debt. And that's going to enter into a currency collapse at some point. And when the currency collapses, everything goes up because people want more per unit until the point comes. When if you have hyperinflation where nobody wants any currency, now it becomes a barter country where, look, I'll give you this if you give me that. I'll give you this ounce of gold if you'll do this for me. That's the way it'll evolve into a new reset, to use a word that likes people like to use out there, comes about uh, and we have a new system. But when that comes, I mean, I don't want to live in that world. Now, I own a lot of gold and silver. I don't want my gold to be 10000 an ounce. I don't. Because I don't want to live in that world. That's a world of hyperinflation, currency collapse, food shortages, civil unrest, martial law, and God knows what else. But I call silver and gold financial life insurance. 
I coined that term a long, long time ago. Financial life insurance, right? I don't want to collect on my real life insurance because I'd have to die. I don't want to collect on my house insurance because the house has to burn down. I don't want to collect on my car insurance because I have to have an accident. And I don't want to collect on my financial life insurance. But if I die, I'm glad I have that insurance. If the, 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 financial, the, the economy collapses and inflation and the dollar dies, I'm glad I have financial life insurance. Uh, and that's the way you got to look at assets. Money burns up. If you have money in the bank, money in the money market, cash in you, uh, under your mattress or in your safe, in an inflationary, a significant inflationary environment, not even to mention hyperinflation, that money burns up. And if you have real assets, you've preserved your wealth. You don't get richer, but you preserve your status of where you are today. And later on in the program, we talk about, he asked me about, is there a Marxist revolution going on in America right now? Um, and you all know I've been talking about that for some time. And uh, this is my response. Later on in the interview, he talks to me about, uh, he asked me if there's a Marxist revolution going on in this country. Now, of course, many of you know that I've been speaking about this for years. That there was a, a revolution going on in this country run by the left. It's, it's picked up a lot of steam in the last year or so. And we're at a critical time, whether or not this is going to succeed or not. So he asked me uh, my opinion and whether or not a Marxist revolution is happening in America. I want to go into another topic here, and that's the, the capitalism debate. Because now what we're seeing is this huge growth in popularity, especially on the, among the left and people my age and younger, for more of a socialist style of government and even a lot of times a... Uh, communist style of government, do you think we're experiencing somewhat of a Marxist revolution in the United States? And do you think that that could be successful? It's in full swing right now. Uh, it's been going on for some time. Uh, uh, our universities and our educational system has been infiltrated by Marxists um, and it's gone on for a long time, but now it's radicalized. It's beyond. I mean, People go to school now not to learn uh, how to be a doctor or a dentist or an engineer. They go there to be indoctrinated. They go there for gender studies and race relations stuff. And they get all this debt they build up and, uh, and then they can't pay when they get out because they can't find a job. But they're radicalized. Look what's going on now in college campuses regarding uh, the Israel-Palestine thing. I mean, do you believe how many Americans, how many Americans siding with the terrorists? Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is the product of our education system. And they were all taught to be socialist and Marxist. And that's why you can't get people to work anymore. Everybody wants a handout, right? Everybody I know, all my clients who have businesses, uh, can't find somebody to work, even with good pay. They believe that they're entitled to be taken care of from, from, from birth to grave. Uh, and they're pushing more and more. And they're being successful, electing politicians uh, that uh, agree with them, uh, being uh I would never send my kid to a college these days. I mean, it'd have to be, you know, a special college that I know isn't radicalized. Uh, but uh, we don't, we're not training our, our people to be productive. And if they're not going to be productive, they want universal basic income. And the more and more radicalized they get and the, the numbers grow, the more and more politicians are sympathetic to them. And, uh, and that's how it works. But we have a Marxist takeover Maybe it's done. Maybe it's taken over. We just don't realize it yet. Uh, the next final step is coming. 
we have a takeover of our educational system. Armenia, totally Marxist and totally left-wing and total propaganda. There's no truth in the media anymore. Uh, entertainment, sports. Uh, I'm probably missing a few of them. Uh, but each of these industries, these major parts of you, you know, uh, American culture have been taken over by radical left wing. Now, they're not the majority in America, but it doesn't take the majority for a revolution. I think in Russia, in Lenin, when Lenin did his revolution, he only had 12% of the population agree with him. Yeah. But all it takes is a violent minority. And these people are violent. You see what happens in these, in these demonstrations and stuff? Uh, the violence against just innocent people trying to drive through a street and then all, you know, it's crazy what's going on out there uh, in the cities. Uh, you know, I wouldn't go into New York City unless I absolutely had to. I wouldn't go to Philadelphia. I live in New Jersey, so me and my wife used to go all the time. We don't trust going there. Who knows when some kind of uh, revolutionary kind of demonstration pops up out of anyway, or, or just general crime on the streets, which are out of control due to left-wing socialist policies in these blue cities. Um, it, it's it's happening now. We need. A, Americans to wake up to it and really see what's happening. And I think a lot of people are. I really do. I think people are starting to wake up and understand because it's being shoved in our face right now. Whether it's teaching your kid who he goes to the third grade that he's a girl. If my son came back from third grade and told me, hey, Dad, you know, I was at school and uh, they're saying that I'm, maybe I'm a girl. You know, maybe I should wear a dress to school tomorrow. I would beat the crap out of my kid. I go to jail now for that uh, because I'm misgendering him. I'm not affirming his desire. But you see what's going on in these schools. I have clients who are teachers in elementary, secondary, and college professors. And they tell me, first of all, they're closet conservatives because they can't let nobody know, you know, what their thoughts are. They just shut their mouth or just nod their heads, all right? But they tell me, Lou, you won't believe what goes on in these schools now. And I think a lot of American parents got a wake-up call by watching the Zoom classes their kids were taking during COVID when they were looking over their shoulder and seeing what these radical teachers were trying to teach these kids. Um, so yeah, we're heading down towards that uh, thing. And now unless we push back quickly, you know, revolutions are very successful until if the people don't speak up and push back. Uh, and what is a radical revolution? I'm not talking about, you know, like Soviet Union communism, although it may come to that, uh, but just, you know, hard leftist European socialism. Um, which isn't good for anybody in the end of the day. Right, you can listen to the rest of the hour and 35-minute interview, if you like, at thefinancialphysician.com. You know, the educational system in our country is failing us, at least the public education. And it's at all levels. You know, it's uh, grammar school, it's high school, it's uh, certainly universities, right? And... Um, they're spending more and more time dealing with you know, equity and race stuff and gender stuff. What they're failing to do is, how about spending some time teaching our kids how to read and write, to do math? And what we're seeing more and more, again, especially in blue places, uh, that schools are, 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 you know how they're dealing with declining scores, especially in the inner cities? By eliminating the requirements that graduates actually uh, attain a level of proficiency in basic subjects, like math and English. Why? Well, they declared that such proficiency tests are unfair to students of color. 
So uh, rather than give these students, you know, the level of education they need to succeed in society, to be able to get a job, now they just, you know, graduate them, put them out into society without any skills. And this is happening, you know, to public schools across the country, especially in the Yiddish city. How about Baltimore? A survey found that 40% of schools did not have a single student proficient in math. Not one. 40% of the schools in Baltimore. So rather than working to reverse that trend, maybe they can get two people in the school proficient in math. What they're doing is they're uh, just lowering the standards. Waving proficiency tests. Because it's better for minority students. It is not better for minority students. It's awful for them. We have record expenditures on public schools these days. And they're just abandoning certain students. Particularly minority ones. They think they're doing them a favor by just waiving the requirements to understand how to add or write. These, these are the subjects you need to succeed in life. And they're just going to graduate these students by removing the testing barriers for graduation. And then you have colleges and universities now that have eliminated SATs or any other standardized test for admission. So what they're doing is they're all the way through these kids' educational life, they're being pushed through and being minimally educated, if that. Well, you know, that guarantees high graduation rates. Maybe that looks better for the, the school board, the supervisor, and the principals. And... It's improving diversity admissions in colleges, right? Well, if you don't have to pass the test, we can allow more certain minorities in. But the problem is uh, these students are left with uh, no education at all when it's all done. And in many cases, they'll have student loans up the gazoo and have no ability to make any real money. And once they're out of the educational system, then they won't be able to function. And if we really cared about these students, we, we wouldn't rig the system so they could just be pushed down the road. It's really outrageous. And there's a reason why you have proficiency standards. You know, they, they, they were created by academics to establish what they viewed as an education that is needed to just succeed in society. And then we're just, you know, we're just pushing them away. And this is happening across the country. There's a national effort out there to eliminate standardized testing at every level of the educational system. Here's an example. The University of California joined the test-blind movement. What is the test-blind movement? And said it would end the use of the SAT and ACT in its admission decisions. The move followed a decision of California voters not to lift the long ban on affirmative action in education under the state law. Many have decried standardized testing as vehicles for white supremacy. Uh-huh. 
University of California President Janet Napolitano. You remember that name? Uh, I'll refresh your memory. She was the Attorney General under Obama. And now she is the President of the University of California. So she was the one who sought to eliminate standardized testing um, in 2019. It's unbelievable. Well, they're not educating our kids on uh, the ability to read or write. Um, They are putting a lot of effort here in New Jersey to ban Halloween in school. Did you hear about this? The superintendent of a New Jersey school district banned official school-wide Halloween celebrations under the guise of diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's those words again. Claiming the festivities may offend people from various cultural and religious backgrounds. Families of students in the South Orange and Maplewood School District received a letter on October 6th from Dr. Ronald G. Taylor, the superintendent asking parents to reflect upon how school-sponsored Halloween celebration exacerbate inequity. This is what we have to worry about on Halloween. It's just ridiculous. As you know, SOMSD is committed to promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion meaningfully. Not just saying the words, but also promoting an inclusive school. Our aim is to build a consistent approach across the district as to how our schools observe and celebrate holidays and special events. Each year, questions arise from families, students, and staff about what SOMSD schools will be doing regarding Halloween. The superintendent notified parents the school's Halloween celebrations are canceled and urged families to consider how the school's promotion of the holiday poses potential harm to students' dignity. All right, so he goes on to say that uh, it violates the dignity of some students and families because of their religious beliefs and they can't participate, or that uh, the cost of buying a, a costume to wear to school uh, is prohibitive, especially for minority families, uh, which, again, is just a racist statement in and of itself. So students in the school district are prohibited from wearing costumes during school hours at the schools, nor are they allowed to partake in Hollywood-themed events during school hours. So, uh, again, they can't teach our kids how to read or write or do an equation uh, because this is what they're concerned about. And, you know, parents are saying, wait a second, this has been a tradition for eons. I mean, kids have gone to school. This is something that's American. This is what we do. But you know what? The overwhelming response by principals across schools in his district supports canceling Halloween. That shows you how whacked all these people in the educational system is, especially the ones that control it. Now, I'm sure rank and file teachers don't all feel this way, but it's the superintendents, it's the school boards, it's the people, the elites. Now, even um, Democrat New Jersey governor Murphy uh, thought this was a bad idea. Uh, He slammed the new policy. He goes, seriously, we can't let kids celebrate Halloween? Give me a break. That was his tweet. Uh, Good for you, Governor Murphy. 
first smart thing that came out of your mouth in a long time. I tell you, you know, education is so important in any country. We spend the most per student in the United States, and we're something like, I don't know, 50th in the world as far as our educational standards and results. Something's wrong here. These are your future uh, doctors, lawyers, engineers, and burger flippers, most of them, because there's going to be very few people who are going to be doctors, engineers, or lawyers. I mean, I can't believe that statistic in Baltimore. 40% of the schools in the city of Baltimore do not have one student proficient in math. Now, that's not gifted in math, proficient. Oh, that's another thing they're doing. Uh, They're hurting people who are gifted and smart and work hard by doing away with uh, gifted programs, advanced programs for kids that are economic. academically advanced. You can't make this stuff up. This is insane. What is the future of our country if these kids aren't being educated? What's the future of our country if they're all being turned into rabid left-wing Democrats? That's even worse, right? And what happens is you get kids that grow up and just can't function in society. Here's a headline. I think this was uh, Zero Hedge. Uh, genera- Gen, Gen Zers meltdown over nine to five jobs. I mean, criticism about Bidenomics. Some Gen Zers are having an emotional meltdown on social media about the world of work and struggles of surviving in the era of Bidenomics. America's youth appears to be done with President Biden, who could be their great great grandfather as a Recent New York Times Siena poll conducted over the summer showed the president's approval rating with the youth is in the dumps. Now listen to this one Gen Zer with purple hair or whatever it was. Listen to her describe the horrors of working nine to five, having a nine to five job. I am a Gen Zer who got her first like corporate in office adult nine to five job this year. And I was actually really excited about it because it was a marketing position in a healthcare company. So I thought it was going to be really great. And I get that the company itself ended up being like horribly toxic. But I also made the decision within only four months of working there that if I had to do this like corporate drone thing for the rest of my life, because I did the math, you couldn't retire in this economy. I just like would rather clock out eternally. Like there were people in their 40s at the company making the same amount of money as me, like still in the same struggling to get by position. And I was like, is this this is it, this is life, because I would rather just, like, tap out right now. And I tried to keep pushing through with blind optimism, but it was, like, so soul-crushing that nine months in, I just had to wake up and be like, hey, is this the life you want to keep living? And the answer was, like, no, I don't want to do this. So I had to leave for my own health reasons, ironically. And I've sadly been happier doing odd jobs here and there, struggling to pay bills and just living life and having fun. And everyone keeps asking, like, what's your plan? What are you going to do? I don't know what the plan is, but I know if I have to go back to that corporate and office nine to five, like, I won't be alive a year from that date. So say whatever you want about Gen Z, but we're just finally putting our foot down about this corporate lifestyle where you waste most of your life sitting in an office doing little to nothing. I would rather just get my work done on my time and then get to go live my life. Gen Z to their core takes the motto, work to live, do not live to work very seriously. And if corporations don't start understanding that, like, it's just going to keep getting worse for everybody. Oh, you poor little snowflake. 
have to work nine to five to make a living. Uh, younger people don't want to work. <laughs> they, they don't want a career. They just want to have a good time. They want to do things on their own schedule. Uh, and I, I guess the remote working for, for many of them who work from home, they love it. They want to keep it that way. Uh, but she's not the only one. Listen, listen to this one. I know I'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying, but this is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college. And I am in person and I'm commuting in the city and it takes me forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now. So that's off the table. Like, duh. If I was able to walk to work, it, it would, it'd be fine, but I'm not. So it literally takes me, like, I leave here, like, I get on the train at 7.30, and I don't get home till, like, 6.15 earliest, and then, like, I don't have time to do anything. I don't, I want to shower, eat my dinner, and go to sleep. I don't have time or energy to cook by dinner either. Like, I don't have energy to work out. Like, that's out the window. Like, I'm so upset. Oh, my God. Nothing to do with my job at all, but just like the nine to five schedule in general is crazy. Being in the office nine to five, like if it was remote, you get off at five and you're home and everything's fine. But like I'm not home. It takes me long to get home and like like people that drive to the office, like it doesn't you don't get off at five. And I know it could be worse. I know I could be working longer, but like I literally get off, it's pitch black, like I don't have energy. How do you have friends? Like how do you have time to like meet like a guy I don't know like how do you have time for like dating like I don't have time for anything and I'm like so stressed out oh you poor little thing you know there was a day when people were happy <laughs> when they finally got a nine-to-five job with a good company and now it's uh, it's a significant inconvenience for our young people in this country uh, and that doesn't portend well for the future when you have a population that's educated as poorly as these 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 ones are, uh, and then they don't want to work on top of it, uh, it doesn't really portend a good future for the country. So Americans are struggling to get by, and many American families now are resorting to credit cards just for essentials. And it couldn't come at a worse time. I mean, we're seeing credit card debt hit record highs every day. And at the same time, the interest rate on credit cards are hitting records all the time as well. Not a really good mix for the consumer. Um, now, I noted uh, in the past that uh, the average credit card uh, APR, annual percentage rate, uh, had hit 22%. Now, you got to understand the difference between um, annual percentage rate and a credit card rate itself. APR is um, compounded over the year. So the APR is going to be much higher than the actual interest rate itself. Well, according to a new report from Bankrate, um, the average retail credit card APR just hit a new record of 28.93%, up from 26.72% in 2022 and 24.35% in 2021. Uh, this is outrageous. I mean, for banks to be able to charge these kind of rates when the federal funds rate's 5% is insane. It's usury. It's really abuse is what it is. And it's destroying the middle class. The highest credit card APRs belong to Academy Sports, uh, Burlington Credit Card, 
Good Sam's reward credit card and Michael's credit card. They boost an absurd 33.24% APR. It's crazy. Uh, 16 retail credit cards charge 32.24% to all cardholders who uh, carry balances, including Jared, K Jewelers, Zales, QVC, Walgreens, Ross, Victoria's Secret, TJ Maxx, and Wayfair. You don't really want store credit cards. I mean, they're the worst. The average uh, store-only credit card charge is 30.24%. Now, you always go to the, the store, the department store. You know, you can save 10% if you open up a credit card right now. No, thank you. But you know how many people do? Now, look, if you could pay in full and avoid interest every month, maybe it makes sense to use a credit card uh, that gives you loyalty points with a store. Otherwise, do not do it. And these cards are ruthless, too. These companies, uh, if you're a day late, man, you're in trouble with them. They will not hesitate to ruin your credit rating uh, and charge you fees. Now, if you're getting cash back from a credit card, that's a different thing. Again, assuming you pay it off. A lot of people say, well, I'm getting cash back 3%. And then they don't pay it off and pay 28% interest on the card. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Oh, boy. But, you know, people have become swamped in credit card debt and for a variety of reasons. Another one is student debt payments have started up again. And that's causing problems for for Americans whose uh, finances changed during the pandemic and they no longer could afford to pay for all their bills, make ends meet, and also pay their student loans. And the problem with credit card debt, it's easy to get into. It's very, very difficult to to get out of. Uh, And that's one of the first questions I ask people when I'm going over their balance sheet. Tell me about your credit cards. And people tend to get sheepish when I ask that question. Well, yeah, kind of, yeah, kind of like, yeah, got them up there. Uh, I know I want to pay them down. Uh, I'm going to do my best. But meanwhile, they keep taking it out and increasing the balance. In my book, you know, I use financial analogies and health analogies together, you know, and I call credit card debt cancer to the financial body. I mean, debt is cancer to begin with. Uh, credit card debt is metastatic cancer uh, and can destroy your financial health. Now, people say, yeah, Lulu, Lulu, I know you're right, but I, what am I going to do? You know, I have to change the, the, the tires on my car before the winter. I don't have the cash to do that. I could barely put food on a table. I, I have to use my credit card for that. I have no choice. Or I can't afford gasoline. It's so expensive. I, I, I got to use my card. And I understand that. I mean, that's the, that's the world that we're living in now of inflation. But really, if you can, pay off your credit cards. You know, you get a, a tax refund. You come into some extra money for some reason or the other. Um, pay off that credit card. You know, in some cases, it even makes sense to take money out of your retirement plan to pay it off. 
or um, I never like seeing people increase debt on their homes, but sometimes, you know, taking out a, a home equity loan to pay off credit card debt may make some sense. But the key is, is paying it off and not cutting up the card and closing the account. It's just a matter of time before you're in the same hole again. And I know it's, it's tough, you know, it's tough out there and I understand. But if you don't, if you if you build up credit card debt, you're never going to be able to get ahead in life. You're never going to be able to fund your retirement. You're never going to be able to um, become debt-free in the future. And you have a noose around your head when you have credit card debt. Now, more and more people now are walking away from their credit card debt. They're, they're, we're seeing the bankruptcy filing soar right now. Uh, that's one way to get out from under it. Does it make sense to do that? Sometimes it does. I recently had somebody come to me with 55000 in credit card debt that they can't pay. They're 50. The whole future is destroyed. They can't pay it back. So I told them, go see a bankruptcy attorney. Yeah, your credit rating is going to get destroyed. But it's going to be destroyed anyway because you can't pay your bills. You can't pay your debt anyway. And actually, um, ironically, once you go bankrupt, you're actually more more of a uh, less of a credit risk because you have less debt. But you may have to make some tough decision. You know, you may have to declare bankruptcy. Maybe you sell your house. Maybe you downsize. Maybe you rent for a while. Maybe you work another job. Unless you're a Generation Zer. Who doesn't even want one job, let alone get two. Um, but interest rates are going up and all kinds of debt. You want to buy a used car now, double-digit interest rates for six, seven years. New cars are almost 10%. Mortgages are on their way to 8%. Just at a time when the country is at record debt level. And the average family is at a record debt level. Think about the country, at least. At least we're in low-yielding, relatively low-yielding, guaranteed bonds. Now, if we're paying 3 4 5%, all right. But if you're paying 30%, you're in trouble. And many American families are in trouble, and that's why we're seeing uh, the dissolution of the middle class. And it's sad. So one thing I track uh, very, very closely because it's a leading economic indicator is the auto sector. What's going on with cars? And we have a car loan crisis. Uh, It started already, but it's going to get a lot worse, especially if we um, go into recession next year, which I'm pretty confident we will be. Um, And we're finding that subprime auto um, borrowers are falling behind on their payments. And that's the first place you see it. You see it in the people, obviously, who are subprime. They're subprime because their credit's bad. They probably don't earn a lot of money. When the economy's good, banks are willing to lend to subprime people, whether it's an auto loan, whether it's a mortgage. You remember what happened in 2008? It was called the sub-loan crisis, right? 
subprime crisis where as long as you could fog a mirror, you were getting a mortgage. And we know how that, that wound up. So when the economy starts to contract and people start becoming tight, first thing they stop paying is usually their car payment. When it comes to putting food on the table uh, or paying your car payment, you put food on the table first. So it was just recently announced that um, the percent of subprime auto borrowers at least 60 days past due rose to 6.11% in September, the highest in data going back to 1994. So you have to go back 30 years to find 6.11% of subprime auto loans uh, in default. So what we're seeing here is the subprime borrowers getting squeezed. And that's where you first start seeing the negative effects of what's happening in the economy. And now, you know, consumers now go out and buy a car and borrow money on it. It's amazing what the payments are. I've told you, I mean, something like 15% or 20% of car payments are 1000 or more. And you factor in, you know, the Federal Reserve's aggressive interest rate hikes over the last year and a half. The highest levels of interest rates in a generation, add to that inflation, the restart of federal student loans, where people have to start making those payments, and we're seeing tens of millions of of people under immense pressure right now, and it's going to get worse. And we're seeing it from the retailers, um, Walmart, Nordstrom's, Macy's, Kohl's, all of them have recently warned about consumer slowdown, that they're seeing retail sales lower. Banks also have raised concerns, believing that the consumer's falling off a cliff right now. And we're starting to see that credit card spending now is starting to go down. So people are they're stopping spending, which is very bad for the economy because the consumer is 70% of the economy. So if people aren't going out and they're not spending money in stores, the only store they're spending money in is the grocery store, but they're not going out to buy new clothes or to buy electronics. It, it trickles down into all aspects of the economy. And as delinquencies rise, you know, you're going to have repossessions. Uh, this firm, Cox Automotive, forecasts that 1.5 million vehicles will be seized this year, up, up from 1.2 million in 2022. Bloomberg cited bank rate data that shows consumers with excellent credit can lock in an average interest rate of around 5.07% for a new car, and 7.09% for a used vehicle. Now, look what happens if you have bad credit. Those with bad credit will pay a rate of 14.18% for a new car. And check this one out, 21.38% for a used car. Uh, That's like ripping out your credit card uh, to buy a car at incredible interest rates. Uh, Who could afford those payments with 21% interest or 14% interest? And that's the problem. It's, uh, you know, we just a couple of weeks ago, I did a whole segment on the right way to buy cars and the wrong way to buy cars. And unfortunately, many of these subprime borrowers bought cars the wrong way. And now they're paying the price. And as I said earlier, Americans don't believe government statistics. And the distrust is warranted. It really is because not even the United States Department of Agriculture could pretend that Bidenomics is working. A new report from the Agricultural Department shows household food 
insecurity in 2022 soared to levels not seen since Biden was vice president during the Obama administration. The USD found that 87.2% of households were food secure last year, meaning that they didn't have a problem feeding their family. Uh, that number is higher than I actually thought it would be. Uh, the remaining 12.8%, which represents about 17 million households, were food insecure. And this is the highest level of food insecurity we've seen in America since 2014. What a terrible thing, huh? Food insecurity, to worry about whether or not you have enough money to buy food for your family. Uh, I, cu I couldn't imagine my kids going hungry or missing a meal. Uh, I'd do whatever I had to do to make sure that that didn't happen. Now, why are these people food insecure? I, I'm not, they're not diving into that. There's lots of reasons. But food insecure households, you know, those with low and very low food security had difficulty at some time during the year providing enough food for all the members of their families because of lack of resources. And uh, the USDA, USDA said that about 5.1% of households or 6.8 million had the most severe level of food insecurity last year. That's sad. That, that, that saddens me. In, in America, we should never have food insecurity. And how much money do we spend on, on SNAP program, the food stamp program, the EBT program, where a lot of people are getting free food? You know, people with food insecurity do get food stamps. That's how you qualify for it. You don't have enough income, not enough resources. So even with the free food that the government gives them, they still don't have enough money to make up the difference and make sure that their family is well-fed. And that's why, you know, many Americans now are, are uh, drained their savings. They've racked up, like I said before, insurmountable credit card debt just to make ends meet, just to put food on the table, pay for gasoline at the pump. And... Uh, and I just mentioned that a lot of people now are starting to lose their, uh, their cars through repossessions. So nobody can go out there and tell me, oh, the economy grew at 4.9% last quarter. No, it did not. I can't believe that, and I won't believe it. And because the economy is so bad, many uh, grown adult children are moving in with mom and dad and staying there. But listen to this story. I got a kick out of this one. Uh, an Italian mother fed up with her grown, so grown son's freeloading has won an unusual court case to have the pair of parasites, quote unquote, evicted from her home. The plaintiff identified only as a 70 year, uh, 75 year old retiree living in the northern city of Pavia had filed a lawsuit in the tribunal of Pavia, accusing her sons age 40 and 42 of overstaying their welcome. According to the complaint, both grown men, whom the disgruntled parent labeled parasites in the court filing, are employed but have continued living in her apartment rent-free. The mother is separated from her husband and lives off her pension, all of which goes towards home upkeep and food. The duo, the duo of moochers have not been contributing financially or even helping around the house with chores, the lawsuit claimed. Judge Simona Caterby sided with the mother, ruling this week that the sons whom she mocked as Bambaconi, or big babies, I probably, probably didn't say that right, Babocioni, that's right, 
or big babies have until December 18th to move out of their mother's apartment. There's no provision in the legislation which attributes to the adult child to unconditionally uh, have an unconditional right to remain in the home exclusively owned by the parents against their will and by virtue of the family bond alone. So in Italy, it's common and culturally acceptable for grown children in their 30s to still be living with their parents. The practice of lingering in a family home well into adulthood is especially common among, um, among men who are dubbed mamoni, or mama's boys. So the woman's sons would have none of this, so they've lawyered up and countersued their mother to stop her from evicting them, arguing that the Italian parents are obligated by law to quote-unquote maintain or support their children as long as needed. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so they're 40 years old and 41, uh, and their mother has the obligation uh, to care for them uh, as long as needed, according to the big babies. That made my day, though. Doesn't take much to make my day. <laughs> so a story like that does it. Uh, I thought I'd share that with you. Leon Cooperman. He's uh, got, I'd say, he's in his late 80s. He's a hedge fund billionaire, uh, very well known in financial circles. He's uh, alumni of Columbia Business School. And he says he's pulling donations um, from Columbia over its support of pro-Palestinian activists. You know, th this is the college where um, the professor came out and said that he was, uh, he thought it was awesome, the Hamas attacks against the innocent Jewish people. Uh, they thought it was just awesome. Babies being killed, elderly people being killed, babies beheaded, tortured in front of their parents. Uh, so he was on um, Fox Business uh, with Liz Clayman, uh, and he explained his reasoning uh, why he's pulling funding. And we're seeing this all over universities across the country. Uh, the anti-Semitism that's really sprung up is just a big surprise, I think, to a lot of people. And it's just another indication how our education system has gone off the rails. And it's run by extreme radicals, extreme left-wing radicals. And why these people in these universities are back in Hamas, I mean, they have no tolerance for gay people, LGBTQ, any of this stuff that they... They espouse. Yeah, you want to be in a, in an Islamic country and uh, you want to tell everybody that even though you're a man, that you're actually a woman and you're going to put women's clothes on, see what happens to you. See what happens to you if you're a known gay in an Islamist society. And I'm going to, uh, you're going to hear in a little while, um, the son of the leader of Hamas who has left the movement, is actually now pro-Israeli, and he's going to explain why. It's really, really a, uh, a real telling uh, speech that he gave, and I'm going to play it shortly. But you have rising anti-Semitism in the school system, uh, the university system in this country. And you see the, the protests out there with Palestinian flags celebrating the atrocities that happened in Israel screaming for the U.S. to prevent Israel from going into Gaza. 
to destroy Hamas. So anyway, here's um, here. Listen to what Lee and Cooperman had to say, especially about the youth in this country. We are back with billionaire investor and Omega family office chair and CEO Leon Cooperman. Leon, uh, I got to bring this up. It's so much in the news, especially in the last couple of hours. You are a proud graduate of Columbia Business School, class of 67, son of Polish Jewish immigrants, first in your family to graduate from college. What do you make of what's happening at Columbia, well, and Harvard, Stanford, NYU as well? There was a student walkout at Columbia just a couple of hours ago, driven by Columbia professor Joseph Mossad, who called the Hamas attack, quote, awesome. Where are we in the world when 1,300 Israeli civilians... I think these kids at the colleges have for brains. That's where they think we're at. That we have one reliable ally in the Middle East, that's Israel. We only have uh, one democracy in the Middle East, that's Israel. Okay? And we have one economy tolerant of different people, you know, gays, lesbians, etc. That's Israel. So uh, they have no idea what these young kids are doing. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book. Now, the real shame is I've given to Columbia probably about $50 million over many years. And I'm going to suspend my giving. I'll give my giving to other organizations. Wow, that is a big statement. Uh, so right here, right now, you're saying no more money to Columbia. Yeah, unless I see a change. I told them that they should fire this professor that made the comments he made. I mean, war is hell. It's, war is not good for anybody. But to praise what Hamas did is disgraceful, disgusting. When he said... Uh uh, these kids have shit for brains. Uh, Liz Clayman didn't know what to say. She was a little jammed up there, and they, they even beeped it out. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you're 90 years old or whatever he is, uh, you speak your mind. And he's not afraid to speak his mind. And here's another example of get woke, go broke. Many, many donors to Harvard and Yale and all these things. You know, they're Jewish. Uh, he's Jewish. And he, you know, he's not going to allow the administration of that college to get his money if they're going to not condemn pro-Hamas statements like that. And they've defended this president, uh, this professor, who said it was awesome. I should find the tape. I'll play it. It doesn't matter. That's what he said. And they won't fire him. Well, we, we, we believe that, you know, everybody has a right to explain their, uh, state their opinion. We're a campus that is uh, uh, open to everybody's views. Yeah, except if you're a conservative and trying to speak at one of these colleges, then you'll be canceled. There'll be uh, protests and everything else. Um, but it's really disgusting what's happening uh, on so many campuses and a percent of young people who side with uh, Hamas. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, something like 18% on university campuses. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot. When you're talking about uh, atrocities like this, how can anybody um, justify that? And now the war has gone into another phase as I'm recording this. It's Saturday um, and uh, October 28th. It looks like uh, the Israelis have started their, their ground offensive. And they're going in, and they're going to clear Gaza of Hamas. And there's going to be a lot of uh, loss of life on both sides. I mean, I think many 
uh, Israeli soldiers are going to be killed in this operation, and it's going to go on for some time. This is not just a, you know, a full-fledged invasion. They're going to do it methodically. Uh, hopefully, they could spare as many civilian casualties as possible. Nobody wants to see children on either side or women or elderly or just innocent people. Because let's face it, the Palestinians themselves are victims of Hamas. I mean, you know, they too are being suppressed. And the average Palestinian in the West Bank or in in the Gaza Strip, I feel bad for them. I really do. Because they're not militant. They don't want to go strap on uh, a belt on one of their kids to explode it and kill as many Jews as possible. All right, I want you to listen to a speech that was given in uh, Israel, uh, sponsored by the Jerusalem Post. Now, I don't know exactly when this speech was given. I don't know if it was prior to uh, hostilities um, with Hamas or not. But this guy is the son of the Hamas, uh, uh, a Hamas leader. There's, there's a, a few of them. And I don't know if his name is Mossab Hassan Youssef or that's the name of his father. doesn't really matter. So he's an English-speaking son, uh, and he's left Hamas. And just listen to what he has to say. This guy is uh, to be celebrated. In the Muslim society, I witnessed a woman who sent five of her children to die in suicide bombing attacks, one after another. She would put this explosive belt on them and bless them and say, go kill the Jews. To gain respect in her society. This is hypocrisy. My father disowned me because he's a hypocrite. On a personal level, he's a loving father. But when he puts the Hamas mask that he cannot exist without, he's a monster, he's something else. And this is the problem with that society conditioning. That if you take individuals on the side, they're just human beings like us. Any of us could have uh, or have been brought in that environment would be conditioned in the same way. The human condition does not differentiate between an Arab or a Jewish person. Muhammad, and I know that I've been told by people here not to say this, so it does not look like the Jews are going against the Muslims. But we cannot fool ourselves. There is an Islamic problem. Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, ISIS, Boko Haram, all of them are killing by the name of Allah. They're not killing by the name of Jesus. They're not killing by the name of Jehovah. They're not killing by the name of Mahavira or the Buddha or Lao Tzu. They're killing by the name of Allah. There is an Islamic problem, and I think humanity needs to stand against this danger. Because this danger is not only against the state of Israel. This danger, thank you, thank you. This danger is against the involvement of mankind. When I was in Ramallah, I was only able to practice Islam. I only knew the mosque, but in Tel Aviv, I practiced Christianity. When I was a Muslim also, I practiced Islam in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, 
where the Jewish people are not allowed to worship at their temple mount. Then, then bunch of hypocrites called BDS come and compare Israel to the racist regime of South Afri Africa. How can you compare? If it's the capital of the Jewish people and the Israeli government are not allowing the Jewish people to worship freely in their capital, on their holiest site, for political correctness, not to offend the Muslims and give them that kind of freedom. How can we compare this to that? In Tel Aviv, I was able to practice yoga. I was able to practice Christianity. They're Muslims, they're Druze, they're all type of people, all type of religions protected under the Israeli umbrella and the Israeli law. This is not available in the other countries surrounding. If Israel is destroyed or if Israel is isolated, what is the alternative? What those people are doing, I really don't understand. I know that I came across pro-Israeli this afternoon, but it has been a privilege. Why not? I love Israel. I love what Israel stands for, its ethics, its values, its democracy, its love. A nation that was able to overcome the Holocaust and instead of playing the victim mentality and blame everyone for their suffering, they were able to build a state, a democratic state, make it from a newborn state to an advanced and completely developed state in less than 25 years. This is a great example. It has been a pleasure. I appreciate the love of the Jewish nation everywhere in the world. I don't care what they label me. Again, I speak with the authority of experience. If they have anything to say, they can say it right to my face. If they have the courage, but I doubt. I know that was a little long, and but I wanted to play as much of it as I could. I did edit out a lot, uh, a lot of good stuff too, but I, I know it was going too long. This guy, he made a great, lot of great points. I uh, wish we had more people like him from the Palestinian side. And uh, if I was him, <laughs> I would think he's a pretty courageous guy because his life's got to be in danger. As the son of a Hamas leader going around, especially in Jerusalem, uh, praising uh, Israel uh, and denouncing Hamas. Uh, pretty risky business for him, I would think. But I thought that was a great speech. And now we have um, the United States involvement, I think, is is just a matter of time. I think we're involved now, I mean, uh, in, in some way or another. But now our bases are being fired upon in Syria, in Iraq. Uh, and how long is it going to be before uh, a sh uh, plane is shot down, uh, American soldiers are killed? by missiles from Iranian proxies uh, or one of our ships off of Israel is somehow attacked, uh, we'll be in it full force. 
And uh, you would think in this time that the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, the commander in chief, would be holding press conferences, would be talking to the people about what's happening and making it clear why we may be involved, what it'll entail, what sacrifices. If we go in, you know, when we get involved in the Middle East in a big way, in a protracted war, there will be a draft. You saw the snowflakes not wanting a nine-to-five job. How about a draft? Are they ready for boot camp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if we started drafting people, they're all overweight. They got mental issues. They're privileged. They don't want to work. You mean I got to get up at 6 o'clock or 530? No, I, I, don't, I don't get up that early. Yeah, tell that to your drill sergeant. This month, Google searches for, quote, will I get drafted into war? Hit the highest number. Highest number since uh, the 2007 Iraq war surge. People are getting worried. And again, if the U.S. is dragged into a multi-front conflict in the Middle East, uh, a new draft is almost assured. You know, military, I said it on here, military recruitment numbers for the past several years have been dismal. With up to 77% of Gen Z not even meeting preliminary physical or mental qualifications, as well as not being able to pass criminal background checks. In some cases, the Department of Defense has been forced to build pre-boot facilities called fat camps just to get recruits physically ready enough to survive normal boot camp. And this is... um, setting aside the fact that the majority of of modern youth are completely devoid of the mental toughness and discipline required required for basic training. As of 2022, it's estimated that over 42% of Gen Z has been diagnosed with at least one mental illness. 42%. It also estimated that another 20% have not sought help for their mental health problems, with 62% of Gen Z taking medications to help with conditions such as anxiety. So these Xennials um, have been all over TikTok and other media sites to uh, let the world know that they're not capable of fighting in a war and will avoid the draft at all costs. Aren't these the same Gen Z that uh, demanded more gay and trans representation in the military? Well, now they've changed their minds. They're far too gay and weak to go into combat. It's unbelievable. I hope that doesn't happen. Um, Boy, we haven't seen a draft since the Vietnam era. And uh, that would be something. If people who don't want to go to war are being forced to. Uh, you know times are, are very, very difficult and very dangerous. Now, um, Biden had a press conference this week um, with the president of Australia, and then he had a big state dinner later that day. And the media was building it up, and the White House was building it up as this big press conference. He took three questions. The press conference lasted, what, nine minutes? Three questions, and he had cards, so he knew who to pick, and he knew what the question was going to be. That's the way they do it there. And then he just turned away. They kept yelling questions at him. He had his big smile. He always, he always likes this big grin on his face when people are asking him questions and he's not going to answer. And he just turns around and uh, the back of his head looks like a corpse, what a corpse would look like of a 90-year-old man. Anyway, 
Uh, and then he goes shuffling off the stage. Three questions uh, from prepared uh, reporters from friendly lefty mainstream news channels. And then he, uh, he's incoherent. The guy is shot. Uh, just listen. I want to thank the, Israeli, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinian, excuse me, and President Sisi of Egypt. We have had troops in the region since 9-11 to go after ISIS and prevent its re-emergence re- re- in, in both, anyway, in the region. You want to make a speech? <laughs> no, look, yeah. obviously they're in jeopardy rather than anything else. Oh, I get that. I get that. Okay. Uh, PBS. We have a, a, a request for a calling. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. The press conference has now concluded. Thank you, everyone. Again, uh, they control the press conference uh, as tightly as they can the White House press office. Three questions, gibberish answers most of the time. When Americans are in harm's way, there's a potential for full-scale U.S. involvement and a potential for a draft, and he takes three hand-picked questions. And then, you know, people shout more questions at him, and he turns around with his big smile on his face, and uh, the press secretary or whoever it was uh, in their office tells everybody the press conference is over. Get out of here. You had enough. Time for Joey to go back to bed. And and th- this isn't funny. I mean, it, this is serious stuff here. I mean, we need a leader now. This guy, uh, can you imagine World War II with this guy as the president? Well, it may be World War III that this guy is going to be the president. And I shudder to think about that. It scares the hell out of me. But we don't have to worry. You know, he could resign and we'll have Kamala Harris as the commander in chief. I don't know what's better. It's it's bad either way. But uh, but we live in dangerous times. And unfortunately, uh, leadership in America uh, is faltering. Now, we finally have a speaker of the House. Um, finally, after what two, three weeks without it, after McCarthy was dumped and uh, Mike Johnson was um voted in as uh, House Speaker, and I'm thrilled about it. I, I like Mike Johnson. I mean, he has a conservative bona fides. I think he has a, like a 93 approval rating uh, with the conservative committee, with the conservative council, whatever it is. Um, he's got like a 94% approval with uh, the NRA. The guy is a, a conservative Christian from the South. Um, so we'll see how, you know, how he does, uh, but uh, this is the way um, it sounded in the House when finally he uh, got the majority necessary to become Speaker of the House. With the 217th pick, and the race for Speaker, Mr. Mark Stone, selects Mike Johnson.
I'm not sure if all the Republicans were applauding because they like Mike Johnson, um, uh, although he did get a unanimous vote from the Republicans, which was obviously tough to do um, in previous rounds of voting for McCarthy uh, and prior to his uh, winning, uh, or just they were just relieved from the embarrassment of not having a speaker for three weeks and having a House seize up and making the Republicans look bad. I don't know. But uh, Mike Johnson, he gave, a, I thought, was a really good speech afterwards. It seemed very inclusive. It didn't seem partisan. Uh, he wanted to work with the Democrats. But you can't work with them because it's their way, the highway. They have no compromise. They all vote together. There's never a straggler that votes for the Republicans. So good luck with that, Mr. Speaker. And if you uh, put your hand out with um, uh, a gift, they'll bite it off. That's who these Democrats are. Uh, truly despicable people, most of them. And, of course, you got the squad there that uh, is pro-Hamas, anti-Israel. Um, so good luck, Mr. Speaker. I hope you do well. Here's part of his uh, speech uh, right after he was voted in as Speaker. To my colleagues, I, I want to thank you all for the trust that you have instilled in me to lead us in this historic and unprecedented moment that we're in. The challenge before us is great, but the time for action is now, and I will not let you down. I want to say to the American people, on behalf of all of us here, we hear you. We know the challenges you're facing. We, we know that, uh, that there's a lot going on in our country, domestically and abroad, and we are ready to get to work again to solve those problems, and we will. Our mission here is to serve you well, to restore the people's faith in this house, in this great and essential institution. All right, well, we'll wrap it up on the other side of the break. Don't go away. AFM Investments' Lou Skatigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company. Member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through our advisors. Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did.
As I mentioned earlier, um, we're no longer going to be doing the midweek podcast uh, starting this Wednesday. We will not have a midweek podcast. It's just... It's just too much on me. Uh, I can't run my business and do uh, the big podcast on Sunday uh, and also do an hour podcast on Wednesday. It's just just uh, just overwhelming for me. So what we're going to do is we'll be doing um, short podcasts during the week, maybe 10, 15 minutes if some news uh, event happens uh, or something happens in the markets. Uh, uh, we'll either do uh, a video podcast. Uh, more often than not, it will probably be video so it'll be on the financialphysician.com blog page or on my Rumble page. But it'll also be on Podomatic. We'll also have the audio uh, of the video uh, that we do during the week. So maybe two, maybe three, maybe none. It all depends on what's going on uh, in the world. Uh, but we won't have – so don't tune in Wednesday for the for the midweek podcast. We, I try to keep it going as long as I could, and it just uh, – it was just a little bit too much for me. But as we've been doing for uh, – Going into our 24th year now, we will be here on Sundays for our two-hour podcast. Uh, I'll have it uploaded by usually 7 a.m., if not 7 a.m., certainly by 9 a.m. Sunday morning. So uh, don't miss uh, the weekly podcast. Also, please share it with your friends and family, social media. Get the word out. That's how the podcast grows. And I want to thank you because each and every week uh, we have more and more downloads. And that's, that's because of you guys telling other people about it. And many of you do tell me through your emails or if I see you that I tell all my friends to listen to you. Uh, and, and I really do appreciate that. America is uh, more divided than ever. We all know that. It's almost to the point of hate, one side to the other. And it, it's, a, it's a real threat to our democracy. You're hearing that a lot lately, a threat to democracy. It's, it's misused mainly by the left for anybody who disagrees with them or wants to have a recount in an election, or, or anything like that. But this surprised me. There was a recent poll that showed the majority, the majority of voters not only view the opposing party as a threat to the country, but they believe that violence is justified to combat the other side. Wow. That's pretty significant. Let's look at the numbers. The polls by the University of Virginia Center for Politics shows a nation at war with itself. 52% of Biden supporters say Republicans are now a threat to American life. Why 47% of Trump supporters say say the same about Democrats. Among Biden supporters, 41% now believe violence is justified to stop Republicans from achieving their goals. An almost identical percentage... 38% of Trump supporters now embrace violence to stop Democrats. Wow. That's that's disturbing. That's disturbing. Uh, That's how civil wars start, with that kind of hatred between both sides. Now, I'm not surprised that 41% of Democrats or Biden supporters believe in it, because they're radical leftists. We're in the middle of a radical revolution, a left-wing takeover of the country. I'm not surprised that 41% of them are are violent. What did surprise me was by almost an identical percentage, I mean, 38% of Trump supporters now embrace violence to stop Democrats. Well, I guess guess I'm one of them. I mean, you know, if the Biden supporters are going to do a leftist Marxist takeover of the country, 
Well, they got to be stopped, right? And uh, by any means necessary, or we lose our country. Do we want to become Russia, the Soviet Union, China? I don't. I don't want to live there. I don't want to be part of that. Boy, this really starts to become violent when the left tries to take away your guns. And boy, they keep, they keep going down that route. You know it. They're going down that route. I don't think it was five minutes after we heard about the shooting in Maine that, of course, the media and the left were all coming out talking about gun control. This guy was in the National Guard. He didn't have a gun anyway. Another thing they like to do, though, is um, they like to scour his social media and say, well, he liked um, Tucker Carlson, something Tucker Carlson said, or, or he liked something that Donald Trump Jr. T- tweeted about. So that means he is an insurgent, a MAGA domestic terrorist, and probably what he did had nothing to do with Trump or MAGA or anything like that. But that's the way they always try to spin it. And if they find that it's the opposite, that he's really, you know, a left-wing radical, well, they won't report that. Ever since uh, Elon Musk uh, bought Twitter and started to uh, loosen up the censorship against conservatives, against Trump, against anybody who disagrees with the left-wing narrative, uh, the Biden administration has been going after him. Again, using the Justice Department like they've been against Trump, weaponizing law enforcement. And they've gone after Elon, you know, for his company, for uh, hiring practices, uh, things like that. Uh, And they haven't stopped going after him for different things, trying to just mess him up. But, uh, you know, Elon Musk, you know, he owns SpaceX. Uh, and he makes the SpaceX Starship. It's the most powerful rocket ever built. And it's not allowed to launch now because it's been placed under review again by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, with consultation by the Federal Aviation Administration about the Endangered Species Act of 1973. Uh, he's ready to launch right now. And the review process will take upwards of 135 days and delay any imminent rocket launch because the government wants to understand the environmental impact of rocket launches. Uh, We've been launching rockets for uh, 80 years, 70 years, and now all of a sudden they want to do that? Come on, it's just harassment. And, of course, you can't help but view the, this investigation by the government with the greatest skepticism. It appears it's just another effort by the Biden administration to weaponize government agencies, to target Musk and his SpaceX program. And it's not because of that. It's because of Twitter. So despite SpaceX delivering 80% of all the Earth's payload mass so far this year, and it's leading the global rocket race, and now we have threats of world war. Some people in the Biden administration are completely fine with putting up roadblocks. 
to his space program. And I bet it's due to the radicals in the White House that are doing it. These people are vicious. I was talking about violence, you know, people think violence is appropriate. This is political violence. They don't care. And that's a scary thing. They'll go after anybody for anything. And they don't care if you know it. And they're harassing Elon Musk. Ever since he bought Twitter, none of this stuff would be happening. It's all political. As part of the ongoing political prosecution of Donald Trump, uh, judges have put gag orders in effect where he can't talk about the trial, can't talk about the prosecutor, can't talk about any of the witnesses. Meanwhile, the prosecutor can uh, leak to the press anything he wants, uh, but Trump's not supposed to respond to it. I mean, this is outrageous, especially in the middle of a presidential election year, which is what's coming up, where Trump's going to be in court for four different lawsuits. Uh, But a surprise happened Wednesday. The far-left American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, made a surprising statement condemning a federal judge's attempt to gag former President Donald Trump. And the ACLU statement came as a shock to many who support the group. It had been one of Trump's primary enemies during his presidency. The ACLU frequently um, sued his administration to block many of his policies. But in the friend of the uh, friend of the court brief, the ACLU agreed with Trump's assertion that a gag order by U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, a Trump hater, uh, is a violation of his First Amendment rights to freedom of speech, as well as a violation of the public's right to hear him speak. Quote, the obvious and unprecedented public interest in this prosecution as well as the widespread political speech that it has generated and will continue to generate, only underscores the need to apply the most stringent First Amendment standard to restrain on defended speech rights. The ACLU told Chutkin that she should reevaluate her order, parts of which the group described as so vague it was unknown and perhaps unknowable. So the group focused on one particular portion, uh, which forbade President Trump from making any statements that could be perceived as making a target out of special counsel Jack Smith, the prosecutor's court personnel or attorneys or witnesses in the case. Reading the order, defendant cannot possibly know what he is permitted to say and what he's not. So uh, interesting uh, turn of events there where you see the ACLU backing a guy that they hate. Um, and they're right. I mean, it is called the American Civil Liberties Union. You would think it would back uh, all um, civil liberties, like freedom of speech, the Second Amendment. Um, you would think that that's the job of the American Civil Liberties Union, and at least now they got it right, but so many times they don't. It'd be the opposite of civil liberties in many cases that that they've uh, they've combated. All right, that'll do it for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Again, thanks for sharing the podcast with friends and family. If you want to get in touch with me, just send me an email, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I promise to respond to each and every email. If I don't, please send it again. 
and uh, I'll be sure to respond. Remember, we're not going to have a podcast this uh, Wednesday. We're doing away with the midweek podcast, but um, make sure you give us your email address at thefinancialphysician.com. Follow the show at Podomatic so you can be notified. I will be doing short podcasts, maybe two, maybe three in a week, maybe video podcasts. The only way you're going to know about it is by having your email with us at thefinancialphysician.com and following the podcast at Podomatic. If you want to come in and sit down with me for our no-obligation one-hour consultation where we'll go over everything in your financial life, just give my office a call at 732-905-8100, 732-905-8100. Have a wonderful week, and don't you ever forget, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far. See you next week.